The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. The day is finally here for us. We're going to be jumping in to our new study on the, first, on the book of 1 Corinthians. We're calling it G- Following Jesus and a Jacked Up Church. So um, that's where we're going to be jumping in. But first off, I've got to make one announcement. We are starting our next round of Sacred City Church membership class. So we believe everyone who's a Christian should be committed, covenant, uh, member of a church. So if you call Sacred City your home, we encourage you to start this membership process. The the process is all on the city. You can sign up for the city back on uh, our box office out at the table back there. Um, That's our online platform where we do all of our communication. Sign up back there. Check out the, um, the, uh, the, stu- the information on becoming a member online. Just search membership process when you get on there. Follow that out. And then there's going to be three classes starting at the end of January. There'll be three classes that are mandatory for you to go through. And then you end up, um, everybody has an interview with me. So we encourage you to do that. If you have not done it already, we added 52 or something like that members this summer. And we're excited to add another whole other class of, of members this year. Let me pray. And we're going to jump into it. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that the authority that we live by, that we stand on, isn't derived from me, isn't derived from our own moral perfection, our own adherence to a standard that's outside of us, but it's based on your grace, it's based upon your word that you have given to us, um, that um, as the song we just sang says, we stand in you, one day we're going to stand in you complete because of your work that you've done for us. And I pray this morning that you would anoint my mind to think clearly, you would anoint all of our ears to hear clearly, and your word would do what it always does, and it would produce fruit in us. It would reveal our sin, our sinful tendencies, but then it would apply the precious balm of the gospel that we so desperately need. Uh, Would you be here uh, in power? Would the gospel save? Would God, would you call people to yourself? Would you rejuvenate and refresh us at this first of the year? We ask all these things for your glory and for our joy, Father, because we know those two things are not separate. Those, those, those two things are linked. For when you are most glorified in us, um, we, we receive the most joy, Father. So we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we start another book of the Bible. We're going to be here for at least 30 weeks or so. Uh, that's the better part of a year. It could be a lot longer. Considering today I'm going to get through three verses, maybe. Um, And we might be here. Who knows? Maybe we'll be here all year. It's fine with me if we are. Um, I recommend to you this year, if you are deciding on a a, a way to study the Bible in your personal devotions, maybe you're looking for something different. I did put a post up on the city about that. But one thing that you can do, one thing that I'm also doing, is I'm trying to commit to reading through the book of 1 Corinthians 20 times over the next month or two. Okay, 20 times. You can, I sat down and read it this week. It took me about an hour. So you can read through the book, just like read it like a regular book. You can read through the book of 1 Corinthians in about an hour. Maybe you're faster than me, 45 minutes, or maybe it'll take you a day and a half. But whatever. Read through it and, and just commit to staying in this book, sitting down in this book, reading it over and over and over. And I think you're going to get a lot more out of it. And you're going to come to walk away from this book saying, you know what, I really know what Paul was talking about when he was writing to the book of Corinth. So, 
Uh, Today we're going to jump into the first three verses of chapter 1. So get out your Bible or open up your app on your phone or your iPad. If you did not bring a Bible and you don't have one, we've got some Bibles sitting on the steps back there that you can grab. Uh, Feel free to take those home. That's our gift to you if you do not have a Bible. Um, We're going to be in 1 Corinthians. It's towards the back of the Bible. Chapter 1 and verse 1. When you're there, let me know by saying there. All right, here we go. Paul. Let's stop right there. Who is this guy, Paul? Right? Now, let me just give you a little bit of backstory. Okay? Saul was a Jewish man, a Pharisee. He called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. That meant he was uh, very religious. He was a guy who was alive during the time of Jesus. So he's a historical figure. He's not made up. He's not a, just a biblical character like a guy that was made up in a fictional novel or a fictional story. He is a historical dude. He was staunchly religious. He was Jewish. And then he lived his life in a strict accordance uh, to the Old Testament and was really extremely well-educated. Uh, and he was strict in regards to following the law. This guy named Saul, he hated Christians. He hated Christianity. He did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And he was therefore um, committed to destroying this new religion that had popped up. And it was spreading across the area. Saul was present and giving his full consent when Stephen became the first Christian martyr. He was actually there holding everyone's cloaks as they stoned Stephen to death. And Saul was giving his amen to their actions. He was saying, yes, get rid of them. Get rid of these, um, these men that are kind of start, trying to start this insurrection, this cult, um, pulling people away from the Jewish faith, this new Christianity as it was being called, or the way. Then after that incident, Saul apparently enjoyed it so much that he got letters of approval from the high priest to go to other towns and to arrest anyone who claimed to be a follower of Jesus. He was on a mission, Saul was on a mission to destroy this new church of Jesus Christ. But it's interesting, on his way to fulfill this mission, with all the authority of the church behind him, all the authority of the Jewish synagogue behind him, he's on this new mission to destroy the church, this resurrected guy he didn't believe in, the resurrected Jesus, shows up to him in a blaze of glory and literally knocks him off his horse. He blinds him for three days and he told him, Saul, it's time to change teams. You're a fool and you've been fighting against the only true God. And now Jesus, Jesus says, and now I am going to make you into my one, one of my chief messengers of this gospel, this good news, this message that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Surprise! You got a new mission. You got a new goal. You got a new life. You got a new vision. Everything changed for Saul in this moment. This is, you know, I don't know how to describe this for you. This is like... Um, the president of PETA uh, killing his first deer or something, right? Like this is, 
This is the, the vegan, and I did this actually, it was really bad. There's this little vegan coffee shop, I didn't know it was vegan. I, I went in and ordered some breakfast, and I said, can I get bacon on that? <laughs> she looked at me like I just slapped her mama. <laughs> bacon, you pig. Well, yeah, actually it is, and it tastes good, right? So this is the chief opponent, the chief opponent becoming one of the chief messengers or the chief um, propagators of this new gospel. And now with this new life of Saul that Jesus Christ gave him comes a new identity and a new mission. So he changes his name from Saul to Paul. So this is the guy who's writing 1 Corinthians. Okay, This is the guy who's writing this book that we're about to study. And this is the same guy who wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament. Now let's look and see how Paul, he used to be Saul, now he's Paul. How's he going to start off this letter to the Corinthians? Let's look. Paul, called by the will of God. Okay, starts off right away. This is who it's writing, Paul, and I'm called by the will of God. Now what we're going to see is that this idea of being called is really dominant in this, this introduction. Paul actually uses the word three different times in these first three verses. So anytime that you're studying your Bible and you're reading Bible and you see something repeated, a little light bulb should go off, a little buzzer should sound in your brain, and it should say, pay attention to this, look at this, he's trying to get something across. Right? Paul called by the will of God, and he's later going to be saying, and you're called to call on him. Right? So it's used three different times. So we should ask ourselves, what does this mean? What does this word called mean? What does it mean that, we're, that, this, that Paul was called by God? Now, the Greek word here is kletos. Kletos. Okay? And it means to be summoned. And this is what the Greek interlinear uh, uh, said. To be summoned where refusal is not an option. To be called means to be summoned where refusal is not an option. I always struggle when I'm thinking of Paul, right? And he, Saul, and he's on the road, and he gets blinded, and Jesus says, you're on my team now. I always struggle with Saul getting up and going, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I got a cousin who could do this blinding light thing. I've seen this before. I'm not really so sure about Like, did Saul really have a chance? Did he really have a choice? You know, and I, I know we struggle, we're Americans, we like freedom, we like free will, and we like all these different things. But really, the resurrected Jesus knocks you off your horse. Do you, what kind of choice, do you, do you say no to that? Nah, I don't know. Maybe not. Right? So this, Paul is saying, I've been called by God. I've been summoned. Like, refusal was not an option for me. Like a king, we don't really know about this anymore, but if a king summoned you into his throne room, there was two options. Okay. Or your head is removed from your body, right? Those are the two. You don't deny the will of a king. And Paul's kind of using that same language here. He's saying, me, Paul, who used to be Saul, I'm writing this to you because I've been summoned by God. I've been called by God. So what we see here right away is Paul letting everyone know that he didn't appoint himself. He was not in 12th grade saying, you know what? I really don't want to get him. I don't want to have to... Have a, I don't want to carry heavy things. I don't want to have a back-breaking job and get my hands all rough. I'll just have a life of books. 
you know what, I'll take this nice, I'll take this nice cushy uh, job. I'll go into the ministry. That'll be a nice cushy job. Paul didn't decide this on his own. Paul was summoned by God. Paul was called by God. He was chosen, and that is where all of his authority comes from. The reason he's living this new life and he's on this new mission is because of one reason. He was called by God. And specifically, what was Paul called to do? Or what was Paul called to be? We don't have to guess. We go right back to our text. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. To be an apostle. Now, an apostle of Christ Jesus, what is that? What is an apostle? We've got to break down some of these words because we don't use them very much anymore. An apostle is a person who has been called by God, saved by God, and then sent on a mission to plant churches. Okay, But apostle also has another meaning. It was kind of like an office. It meant that you were one of the men who had been personally with Jesus. And therefore you had a position of influence. Just to be clear, I like to distinguish between these two types of apostles um, like this. I say one is a big A apostle. Okay? And a big A apostle, those were the guys who were with Jesus. They could do special things like a lot of miracles. And they could write books of the Bible and be inerrant and do things like we cannot do. Okay? God used them in special ways. There are no more big A apostles. All right? Nobody can write a book and then say this is a new revelation of Jesus Christ. The, the canon of Scripture is closed, all right? The, the books that we have are the Word of God, and they're closed. There's no more big A apostles. But I believe there are still little A apostles. Guys who plant churches, who plant churches, who plant churches, and they keep spreading, right? Entrepreneurial type people, that's a little A apostle. But Paul says here that I'm a big A apostle, right? Because Jesus has called me. He came to me and changed the entire thrust of my life. And then Paul, what does Paul do? Paul begins to go and plant churches. And if you go to the book of Acts, which is really fun to do, if you go to the book of Acts, in the 18th chapter, I really wanted to take like a super long time in this introduction. I might go back to Acts and do all this stuff, but I'm not going to do it. I'll let you do it on your own, just summarize it for you. In the 18th chapter, you, you would find that Paul is on this mission to make disciples and to plant churches. He plants churches all over, and he leaves this great city of Athens, right? He leaves the city of Athens, and he travels to this city called Corinth, okay? And that is what um, the text says. Paul is writing here to the church of God that is in Corinth, all right? Well, where did that church come from that's in Corinth? Paul, in the 18th chapter of Acts, plants the church in Corinth. It was in the year about 51 or 52 AD, Paul planted this church in Corinth. Now let me, let me tell you a little bit about Corinth. Corinth was a city that stood on this little narrow isthmus. Now an isthmus is like, uh, it's kind of like a narrow land bridge that connects two larger land masses, all right? So Corinth is on this It's a city that's like right in the middle or right on the edge of this isthmus. So if you're traveling from one continent or one land to the other, you had to cross this little land bridge. So everybody traveling by land had to go through the city 
of Corinth. All right? It was only four miles across, and it linked the southern part of Greece with the rest of the country, and then the other countries to the north. In this important position, it inevitably became a really prosperous center of trade and commerce because everybody had to go through it, right? If you're going through on land, you had to go through Corinth. This made Corinth large and licentious. Corinth was the biggest city Paul had yet encountered. It was a booming, brand new, uh, commercial uh, metropolis. The population was around 200,000. So it's about the the size of the city of Davenport, right? A couple thousand years ago. Although some scholars even argue that it was much larger than that. Um, Like most really important seaports, Corinth became both prosperous and licentious, like I said before. So much so that, that Homer, in his writings, not Simpson, sorry, but Homer, in his writing, speaks of wealthy Corinth, right? It was a rich town. And Plato even used the term Corinthian girl as a euphemism for prostitute, right? So Corinth was known as being hot, all right? I'm just going to say being rich and sexy and licentious. That's what Corinth was known for. Now, something cool that I discovered in in, in my studies also, the this is a weird game, the Isthmian games, all right, games that were on the Isthmus, the Isthmian games were also held in Corinth. Now, what were those? They were an athletic competition that was only second in importance to the Olympic Games. And this will shed some light later on in the book of some of the metaphors that Paul's going to use of the Christian life. He talks about um, wrestling. He talks about pummeling his body and disciplining his body like an athlete. He talks about shadow boxing. He's not just fighting like somebody's boxing at the air. He's using all this athletic imagery because he's preaching and, and writing to a city that, was, that loved their sports. Now, I know some of us love our sports. Some of us love our sports too much. This has been a rough week for me. It's been a rough two weeks, actually. Ah. Can we just have a moment of silence for the Crimson Tide this week? Sorry. So Corinth was also a city that was full of worship, right? It was Greek, but it was also Roman. It was a Roman colony. Rome Rome kind of spread out all these little colonies to try to make everybody Roman, but it was really influenced by Greek culture. It was full of worship. Dominating the city was the Acrocorinth. What is the Acrocorinth? It's a hill of over 1,850 feet. So almost this, you would walk in the city and you would see this hill of almost 2,000 feet elevation. And on top of this this, um, hill was a large temple to Aphrodite, Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. This temple, get this, had 1,000 priestesses. It's one temple to Aphrodite. had 1,000 priestesses. Now, how do you worship the Greek goddess of love? The priestesses were sacred prostitutes. And they would come down into the city every single night when evening fell, and they would ply their, ply their, tree, their, their, they would ply their trade in the streets. Right? So, uh... Men were really into worship in the city of Corinth, all right? 
This was, I'm telling you, this was not a, a town that was kind to females, right? We have a thousand prostitutes coming, coming down into the city. Men could sleep with whoever they wanted to. They had their athletic pursuits. And, I mean, it was very, it was dominated by males. In addition to that temple, there was also the temple of Apollo in the city itself. Now, Apollo, if you're familiar, is the god of music, song, and poetry. And it's also the ideal of male beauty. So there were nude statues and friezes of Apollo in various provocative poses, and they would inspire his male worshipers to physical displays of devotion with the gods' beautiful boys. So Corinth was therefore a a center of homosexual practice. Corinth was a licentious city. According to the scholar Gordon Fee, the city of Corinth was all at once like a modern-day New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas. It was full of money, entertainment, drunkenness, orgies, and prostitution. And God calls Paul to plant a church in Corinth. And in chapter 2, you're going to hear Paul start talking about, I was really scared, and I came to you in fear, and I came to you in trembling. Why? Because God called him not to go to some little, you know, sunshine state of all these nice little religious people. He sent them to go into the center of idolatry and witchcraft and, and sexuality. He sent, them into a, he sent him into a really dark place. Why? Because God loves the city. I would like to do a whole theology in the city right now because for the first time in history, over 50% of the human population lives inside cities. And that number is only increasing. Corinth was kind of a test case for Paul. See, he had seen a Christian church grow and multiply and flourish in the moderately sized cities that he had founded in Macedonia. But now he's going to see, can, it take, can the gospel take root in this type of city. David Pryor in his commentary says, if the love of Christ could take root in Corinth, the most populated, wealthy, commercial-minded, and sex-obsessed city of Eastern Europe, it must prove powerful everywhere. If the gospel can do something in Corinth, the gospel can do something anywhere. See, Corinth was a hot city. Sex, money, and culture, they were popping in Corinth. But like our great cities, Corinth had this dark underbelly. It was a city that was built on the pursuit of personal success. See, Corinth was a city that was obsessed with fame and increasing their own individual social status. They were socialites, crazed with climbing higher and higher and higher on their own social ladder. One commentator said that they were absurd slaves to fame who were stupefied by titles and masks. What does that mean? That means they loved e-entertainment television. That means they set their DVRs to record TMZ every night, right? There was, what it meant is there's this great divide between the rich and the poor. That most of the rich were really rich, and they were getting really rich and richer and richer, and the most of the poor were getting poorer and poorer and poorer. They were obsessed. They didn't care about the community or communitas. They cared about individuals. They weren't worried about their neighbor. They were worried about themselves. So Paul, in Acts chapter 18, he goes to Corinth. He follows, if you read chapter 18, he follows his normal procedure uh, 
for planting churches by preaching in the synagogue first. And what's cool is God calls the synagogue leader, Sosthenes, to himself. And Sosthenes gets converted. So Sosthenes is the Jewish, he's the synagogue leader. Paul preaches the gospel to him. Sosthenes converts to Christianity. And then he gets his butt whooped, right? Literally, he gets beat up, kicked out. And now they're kicked out. Paul and Sosthenes are both kicked out of uh, the temple where the Jews would meet and gather and worship. They all got booted from the temple. So what do they do? So cool how God works. So Paul preaches, and this guy, and you can see this in Acts 18, um, Titius Justice gets converted. Well, just so happens, Titius Justice lives right next door to the temple. He's the next door neighbor to the temple. So they get booted out of the temple where they wanted to start the church, and they wanted to preach, and they wanted to get all their converts to get this new church going. They get booted out, but hey, the next door neighbor, next best thing. So they go over to his house, and Tish's house now becomes home base for the Corinthian church. All right? So they could stand on the porch and just look at people going to the temple and go, hey, over here, come on over. Right? They could proselytize and preach the gospel to these new Jewish uh, and get more Jewish converts. So here we go. Paul plants this church, AD 51, 52. And then Paul does what he does because he's an apostle. He moves on to go plant more churches. Okay? He doesn't stay for too long. He, does, he stays for a couple years, but he doesn't stay too long, and he moves on to plant more churches. But it's not long before Paul starts hearing things that just make his ears burn. This young church that he had planted in this booming metropolis of Corinth, which was probably about 50 or 60 people, most scholars say, had some serious issues. See, here's the, here's the issues. The whole book is about this right here. Corinth was having a greater influence on the church than the church was having on Corinth. That's the issue. And I'm going to tell you today, that's, there's, it's a tightrope that we walk between the culture and the church. And you can fall off that tightrope on either side. You can try to become this little holy huddle that hides away from culture and tries to insulate everyone and you become insular and all about you and you become very religious and very cold and very dead and very lifeless. Or you fall off on the other side of the tightrope and you look like Corinth where you can't really tell the difference between the church and Corinth. See, we say around here that church planting is all about planting the seed of the gospel into the soil of a culture and then trusting the sovereignty of God to grow a thriving church. But all too often, the soil of the culture can choke out the fruit of the gospel. And that's what we see here in Corinthians. Instead of the gospel getting into the soil of Corinth, Corinth was getting into them. Or Corinth was already in them. Too much of Corinth remained in them. See, the wealth of the city have made the church divided and cliquish. There were the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor. There was jealousy and strife and envy. We're going to find out later on in the book there was sexual immorality. They were getting drunk at the communion table. They were suing each other. They were showing off their fancy spiritual gifts, trying to see who's the best. 
They were competing. See, they were a radically individualistic society, and they brought that individualism into the church, and they didn't know how to live as a community. They only lived for themselves. And this was degrading the community as the rich members were looking down on the poor members, and they all were still worshiping idols. This is a jacked-up church. I'm going to say, I'm just going to show my hand early, and I'm going to say our church is no different. We at Sacred City Church, we are a jacked up church. I know because many of you think that I'm the best one here, and I know how jacked up I am, right? I know how jacked up I am, right? So we are in your life. If, 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 you, if you're jacked up in this room, I'll tell you there's a place for you here. And I think God's going to speak to us. I believe God's going to mature us. I feel like God's already been doing a huge work in my heart. I feel like the next 30 weeks, I, I can't wait to see what God's going to do. It's going to be tough. Some, at some, some moments, it's going to be really tough. We're going to squirm a little bit. And that's exactly kind of what Paul's trying to do. See, Paul is writing this letter about two years after he planted the church. And listen to me. This is not a letter that you take to bed with you and it gives you warm fuzzies. Okay, this is not a warm blanket. This is a letter of rebuke. This is a letter of correction. This is Paul's most aggressive letter. Paul gets sarcastic in this letter. Paul is on the offensive in this letter. But to a lesson to all of us who are more aggressive and we want to call out sin and we want to be hard and we want to go, we need to learn and, and we need to realize, we need to see how Paul calls out sin and how Paul brings correction and how Paul is trying to uh, bring people back and call them back because he does it stern but with a heart of love. And a, he has a warmth. So Paul, I'm, I'm just going to let you fill you in on this. Paul actually writes them four letters. We only have, we only have saved in the canon of Scripture two. Okay? Um, some people say the reason we only have two is because in the other two, he went off on them. <laughs> like, this is like him refining himself. But the first time, he just let them have it and just called them all kind of names and went off on them. And then so they, so, you know, they had to chuck that one. Uh, because they do, they do kind of talk, talk about in the, in some, there's some stuff inside this letter that talks about how he, he, he came aggressively the first time, and he writes really hard, but when he shows up, he's really soft and cuddly. And uh, so there's two letters that we don't have anymore, and there's two, ladder, two letters that we do have that we believe are inerrant. But this letter is, is a correction. Paul's trying to straighten out the young church that he planted. Listen, he, and I'm going to say the same for me towards you, I love you deeply. Paul loved this church deeply, and it grieved him greatly. It bothered him. It, 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 it was a pressure and an anxiety on him over their well-being. When he would hear these reports about all this junk that was going on in their midst, it burned him. And he longs to tell them that God has a greater life for them, and, and God has given them victory over this life that they're in. So how does he bring correction? How does he do this? Listen, he's going, we're about to find out, he's going to be forceful, but he's not going to be heavy-handed. He wants to bring correction, but he wants to do it in love from a distance. And that's a hard, listen, you can feel through the whole letter, Paul's wanting to go, I am an apostle, you know, he's just wanting to let him know. Like, listen to me, I am your father in Christ, I'm your spiritual father. Stop doing that. He's got, he's got this thing in him that he just wants to call him on the carpet. But he's trying to walk in humility. 
He's trying to be patient with them. He's realizing that this is, this is a, a wicked city. That this, there's a lot of pressure on them to, to, to bend to the city. So he's walking this tightrope of grace and love and forgiveness and while still calling them to a new life. I say he's on the attack, but he's doing it from a gospel position of love for them. He's not just letting them have it, telling them they need to do better. Paul is the word that we use around here. Paul is gospeling them. He's attacking their idolatry with the truth of the gospel. This letter will show us Paul's understanding of how people change. See, Paul believes that what that their theology shapes the way they live their life. That what they believe affects how they live. Now listen, we believe that at Sacred City. That all of your behavior flows from your heart. All of it. What you believe affects the way that you live. And therefore, it works in reverse. The way that you live shows what you really believe. We all know you can say you love God and you can say you worship God, but the way you live shows what's really in your heart. Paul, all through the letter, is going to be hammering this. He's not just going to chop off the fruit and argue about the bad fruit that's being being produced. He's going to go to the root. And he's always going to address things theologically. He's always going to say, the reason you're doing that is because you don't believe the gospel. That your failure to believe the gospel is producing this idolatry and this licentious lifestyle. So, let's go to verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth. The church. What is church? That word means, that word is, in the Greek, it's ecclesia. Now the church, all it is, that was just the, the word of assembly. Just meant anybody that got together, they were, that was an assembly. That was, a, that was an ecclesia. Okay? But Paul adds this special word to it, right? The ecclesia of God. He uses this normal word and then he adds of God. So you are the assembly of God. We say around here that the church is the people of God who have been saved by the power of God. For the purpose of God. That's what the church is. The people of God, saved by the power of God, for the purpose of God. It's all about Him. Now, I, I, want, you to, I want to prove this to you. Listen, many of us, we think the church um, is, the, is the good, moral, upstanding people that come together and they just commit to living a moral life together and they just want some moral lessons on a Sunday and they want to be encouraged and sent out. But that's not how Paul defines the church. Paul doesn't define the church as a religious institution. Paul defines the church as a gathering of people, the people of God who have been called. Now look at this. Look at this next text. And understanding all the stuff I've already told you about Corinth and the stuff we're going to learn later in the book about how jacked up the church was. This is how Paul describes them. He's writing this letter of correction, and this is how he starts it off. To the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, we've got a lot of big words here, I know. Sanctified, it means those who have been made holy, those who have been made pure, those who have been made clean. That's what sanctified means. Now, keep reading. Called, you see that word again? Called to be saints. Together with all those who in every place call Upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, 
This is a great definition of what the church is, and more importantly, what a Christian is. A Christian is a sanctified saint. Now, many of us, we got all kind of crazy ideas of what a saint is, right? But a saint, every Christian is a saint. And someone who's been sanctified, that means somebody who has been made holy. This is what a Christian is. A person who has been called, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to look at, look at verse 2, called to be a saint, who in every place call upon the name of our Lord. Okay, so a Christian or a saint is somebody who has been called by God, and then someone who then in return calls upon the name of Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian is. Now listen, I meet many people when I ask them, are you a Christian? They answer by saying, I'm trying. I'm trying. That reveals a belief problem that reveals a misunderstanding of the gospel, that reveals a misunderstanding of what a Christian is and therefore what a church is. Okay? You don't, you cannot try to be a Christian. You either are one or you are not one. Okay? A Christian is someone who has been called by God and then calls upon the name of Jesus Christ and in that calling... In God calling you and you calling to Him, God sanctifies you and makes you a saint. Has nothing to do with your own performance. Has nothing to do with you trying harder. Has nothing to do with you obeying any set of rules. This text should make that perfectly clear for us. We're going to find out the people he's speaking to. One guy is sleeping with his mother-in-law. Okay? One guy, we could, we, we could go on and on and on and on. Like, off, eating food at the table, getting drunk, coming to the table, coming to the table and getting drunk on the Lord's Supper. And just to clarify, we do, we, we, we practice uh, communion and the Lord's Supper by intinction. It means you take the piece of bread and you dip it, okay? There's, some, there's always a little bit of confusion. And we've, we've had a few people grab that baby and want us to lug her back, right? Whoa. Whoa. Okay. This is a jacked up church. And what does Paul do in his introduction to the church of God? God's church that's in Corinth. Saints who have been sanctified. That's who he's right. That's how he calls them. That's how he labels them. This is ridiculous. This is humbling. This crushes me. You want to just go off and point out their sin and go, oh my goodness, are you even a church? Are you even Christian? Do you even believe? Look at the way you're living. Segregation between poor and rich. That's not the way the gospel changes our hearts. You look just like the world. Wanting to go off on them. But before he does, he says, to those who've been called and those who call, the ones who've been sanctified and made into saints by God. Unbelievable. People, this is the gospel. How did these jacked up sinners become saints? They called on the name of Jesus. They were called by him and they called. That's it. That's the gospel. That's what we do. 
We're called. We hear his voice. We feel the prompting. Many of you feel the prompting right now when you're in here. We feel the prompting, and then we call, and we say, I am jacked up. I am a sinner. I am broken. I am nothing, and I can't live my life without you. I need you, Jesus Christ. That is a Christian. That is a Christian. I want you to hear this. These people are Christians, even though their life doesn't look like it. Even though they're jacked up and they're in sin and they look like the world, Paul says, I know, I was there. I preached the gospel to you. I'm your spiritual father. I know you believe. I know you're a Christian. And you need to know and you need to remember you're a Christian. Unbelievable. See, that's the only way we'll ever be fit for God. How can, a whole, how can sinful people stand before a holy God? There's only way, one way, by admitting your dependence and calling on Jesus. That's the gospel to us. We have to be made fit for heaven. We have to be sanctified. We have to be made holy. We can't make ourselves holy. We have to be made holy. If, you, if, you, if you're anything like me, I've been a Christian now, I don't know what, how long it's been, 15 years, something like that. And every step I take forward, I feel like I take at least a half step back. Like, the older I get, the clearer I can see my sin. And the more ugly my sin is. And the more frustrating it is. And I realize that every step towards Jesus I get, I just feel myself dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. There's no way. I'm never going to get holy enough to stand on my own two feet before the Almighty God. It's never going to happen. The only way I can do it is by standing in the righteousness of God, saying, I know that God called me, and I know that I called upon Him. And Paul says that when we call upon Him, He sanctifies us and calls us saints. And Hebrews says, so now with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That's the confidence I have. Confidence in the righteousness of Christ. But I want you to recognize something here. I mentioned earlier that if something's repeated over and over, we need to pay attention. This uh, introduction, I'm going to read it all right now, and I'm going to emphasize this. Listen to this. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of who? Christ Jesus. Verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place, that's us, all those in every place, Call upon the name of who? Lord Jesus Christ. Both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This guy has, he's not worried about like his prayers sounding repetitive. Right? It's very clear his focus is Christological. What does that mean? All about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And he uses this word three times. This word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a throwaway term for us. What does that mean? My Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Most of us think Lord is a band, right? Not most of us. Some of us do. Sorry. See, what's Paul saying? Three times in in two verses, he says, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, right here, is using this word. It's called kyrios, or Lord. 
He uses it three times, but guess what? Throughout this book of Corinthians, he's going to use it 66 times. He's going to call Jesus Lord, Kyrios, 66 times throughout this book. Jesus is Lord. But what what does that mean? What does that mean? Listen, I'm just going to say it like this. This is the easiest interpretation. Kyrios means master. Jesus is master. So what Paul is saying, you have been called, you have been summoned by the master. You have been summoned by the master, you have called upon the master, and now you need to live a life in submission to the master. To say yes to Jesus. Now this is what we need to hear. No one has Jesus as their savior unless Jesus is also their master. I'm not going to use the term Lord because we don't get it. I'm going to use the term master. To say yes. To respond to God's call on your life and to call on Jesus means that you are submitting to him as your master. He's your Lord. It's so interesting to me here that Paul is writing to this church that is rebellious, that is sinful, that is divisive, that is sexually immoral. And the first thing he does is remind them that they have been called by God, that they have responded to his call by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they have already been made holy, that they've already been sanctified, that they are saints presently, but they're not living like it. They are living for another master. They need to be reminded, Jesus is your master. Now, that's what it means to come to Christ. You give up your entire life to him and you say, you're my new master. And if you're not a Christian in this room, that probably doesn't sound too appealing to you. Hmm, Jesus as my master? No thanks. Like that poem, the the Invictus poem, if you're familiar with that poem, that says, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's the clarion call of our generation, right? I don't need a master. I'm educated and civilized. I'm disciplined and tolerant. I am my own master. I am the captain of my own soul. I am free from that kind of archaic tyranny of needing to submit to a master. I don't have, nor, I, nor do I need a master. I am my own master. And I'm just going to present to you, like, are you sure about that? Because I think you have what we would call functional masters. It doesn't really matter what you say. You could say, you're your own master. I do what I want and I don't care. You could say all that. But what are your functional masters? What, what are functional masters? Those gods, little g, those gods or those things that you must have. You know what I'm talking about. If you don't have those things, they drive you into the ground in despair. And then to get those things, they're going to drive you in your goals and in your schedule. They're going to drive you. That's what a master does. It drives you. 
What are your functional masters? Listen, here's a few. Is it respect? What? How could you be mastered by? Is it the respect of others? You just have to be noticed. Everything you do, somebody has to congratulate you. Somebody has to say, great job, good job, you did great. You just have to be respected. If your boss or a friend calls you out on something or says you screwed up or you did something wrong, it just crushes you. You get angry or, or, you, get, or you isolate yourself. You get defensive. You bite back or you try to dismiss them by pointing out some, something that's lacking in them. See, you are serving another master. You are being driven by another master. And when you do something that is not worthy of respect, that we all do because we're all sinners, you get crushed under the weight of your own false reputation, your own desire for respect. That that weight crushes you. See, that's a cruel master. You're not free. You're enslaved to the reputation and the opinions of others. Is money your master? Because it's cruel too. It will take your whole life to get it. And then on your deathbed, it will leave you penniless. You will sacrifice your family for it. You'll pass up friendship and ministry and mission because you've got to serve your master. See, money is cruel. And then in one fell swoop, one stock market swing, everything can be taken from you. One Insurance company goes bankrupt. One uh, stock market company goes and everything could be taken from you. And everything you've worked so hard and you've sacrificed so hard for can be gone. Or, men, you work so hard and you don't put the time into the wife and then the wife and the kids and, and the divorce happens and you lose half of it anyways, if not more. That's slavery. See, what happens when you fail money? What happens? Does money give you grace? Do bill collectors give you grace? No, they give you 90 days maybe, right? Not much more than that. There's no grace when you serve the God of money. There's no grace when you serve the God of your own reputation and you have to have the respect of others. See, that's how, and listen, you could put anything you want into this picture. What is your master? Is it your sexual drive and appetite? Is it your kids? See, in the Gospels, Jesus says that we're all slaves to sin. That we are all mastered by something in our life. We all have something that we look to for our identity. Something that we say, if I have that, if I can just get that, then I'll finally be happy. If I can get the nice car, I'll finally be complete. If I get the job in the corner office, then I'll finally have the respect. If I can just publish the book, if I can just get the masters, if I could just whatever, whatever, whatever. If I can just get it, then I'll be happy, then I'll be complete. If I have that, then I'll finally be happy. Whatever that is, be it money, sex, power, security, fun, morality, respect, control, children, whatever it is, especially good things, whatever it is that you are looking to that tells you that that your life has meaning when you have it, that thing is your master. And we need to do inventory in our own hearts this morning. What is our master? 
Not what we say as our master. What is our functional master? See, if your friends, if it's your friends, if your friends are your master, when they're happy, you're happy. But what happens when you upset them? See, they're cruel. You lose everything. See, if you fail them, there's nothing there but despair. So what will you have to do? This is, you know, if your friends are your God, if your friends are your master, you know what you have to do. You'll have to put on a show, you'll have to constantly wear a mask, and you'll never really speak your mind because you can't speak up against them because you're afraid to lose them. They are your master and that's slavery. You can't love them by speaking the truth and love to them, and they can't love you because they, they can't give you what you're looking for. They can't accept you for who you really are. They can't know you for who you really are. You're constantly wearing a mask. See, if your friends are your master, you're enslaved to them. See, that, this idolatry, this serving other masters, that's what's going on in Corinth. And I'm going to say, that's what's going on in your home. That's what's going on in my home. That's what's going on in our church. We're submitting ourselves, Christians and unchristians, we're all submitting ourselves to other masters in our life. See, the Corinthians weren't living like Jesus was their master. They were living just like the rest of the city. They were schmoozing the rich. They were trying to win friends and influence the rich and famous. They were overlooking the poor. And they were trying to advance their self And listen, church, and the church had become just another place to prove how much better they were from others. The ethos of the culture, social status, climbing higher, being better, individualism, being better than others, that ethos from the culture had taken root in the church. And now they were using their own spiritual gift, they were using their own knowledge, They're using their money to get above each other. Not to love each other. See, the cross levels us. The gospel levels us. The gospel says you're all sinners and you're all broken and you all need redemption. And the only way you can find that is through calling on the name of Jesus Christ. So the poor and the rich are the same in the kingdom. See, God calls us in the gospel and then he creates in us a different type of city. That's why we call ourselves sacred city. That we are a city of God that's been called out of the world and then sent back into the world to show them a different way of living. A way that the gospel shapes everything we do. A way where the rich don't look down on the poor and the poor don't look up to the rich in envy. And we can live together in community loving one another place where they don't point out and compare themselves with each other and try to get above each other on the social ladder and get into this group because this is the cool group. And the church can be a hotbed for that kind of stuff. But the gospel obliterates it. In Ephesians, Paul says all the dividing walls of hostility between us have been annihilated through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are one and the same. We are sinners and we are broken. Love that song that we sang today. Simultaneously, though, Listen, 
We are sinners. We are broken. But if you call them in the name of Christ simultaneously, we're saints. Listen, that's what Paul is saying. Everyone has a master. But all, what Paul is saying right here, listen, Jesus is the better master. Every other master in your life, you'll work really hard to get the acceptance, you'll work really hard to feel good about it, but if it's taken from you or if you fail it, right, you can earn your boss's approval all you want and all it takes is one really bad decision and he turns on you and you lose everything. Everything you worked hard for can be taken from you. Every other master is cruel. But Jesus Christ is the only master that when you fail him, he dies for you. He's the only master that when you fail him because of his work, he still calls you a saint. All other masters are cruel, but only Jesus, the master of the universe, gives us grace. Though you fail me, my blood covers you, and I can call you saint. Jesus frees us from the tyranny of little masters by becoming for us our ultimate master. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Our master Jesus Christ. The Son of God who lived a perfect life but then was willing to give up all the prestige, all the reputation, all the accolades that he could have received to go to a rugged Roman cross and die in our place for our sins. See, Jesus is the only master who has given up everything to give you everything. He gave it all up so you could have him. Jesus lost it all so you could have it. And to the, to, the, to the degree that you believe that, your life and your values and your community will be shaped by it. That's what we believe. That's what Paul is preaching. To the degree that you believe the gospel, your life will produce the fruit of the gospel. That's what we believe. And we are unbelievers and we struggle with belief and we need Jesus and we need the Holy Spirit to help us in our unbelief, help us cling to the gospel, help us see the beauty in the gospel, help us hold on to let everything else be rags and hold on to nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul closes this introduction by saying, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord, our Master, Jesus Christ. In the midst of your failures, an apostle who can speak on the behalf of God says, grace to you and peace from God, your saints who have called on the name of Jesus. Let that be a warm blanket for us this morning. Let that soothe our, our idolatrous heart who's constantly wanting more attaboys and more accolades and more approval and more success and we want to measure ourselves against our neighbors and against other people. We want to be put up high on the status, on the social status pole. Hear the words of the gospel this morning. Paul will say, Paul says in other places, I count everything else as dung 
the glory of Jesus Christ. I pray that God would give us that perspective. That our master and our savior and the gospel would be more real to us than desire for riches and wealth and comfort. Let me pray. Father, we don't make ourselves a Christian. You call us, and we respond to your call by calling upon you, and then you make us Christians. So it's an either or. We are, and we have done that, or we have not. I pray for those in this room who have not. Maybe they thought Christianity was just another way to kind of earn God's approval through moral rules and, and being good enough to earn his acceptance. I pray that they heard something new and fresh this morning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus earned that acceptance for us, and all we do is call upon his name. And Father, for those of us who have called upon you, and you have made us righteous, and you have made us saints by sanctifying us, would you take that truth, that reality, would you take it deeper in us? Would it affect us from our inside out? Would our neighbors notice a difference? Would our spouse notice a difference? Would our kids notice a difference? Would our boss notice a difference? Would our missional community notice a difference? Would you produce gospel fruit in us and by enabling us to see and to savor Jesus Christ in a greater way today? Father, as we come hungry to this table, would you meet our needs in Jesus Christ? Would you sustain, bring sustenance to us? Our hungry souls, our famished souls, would you communicate grace to us through this meal? We come in your name because you told us when we gather together to come and break bread, proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ until you return again. So we do that this morning and we give you all the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.